word of the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. Looks like they're following uh, Miss Robin back there. All right. And while they're headed back there, let me uh, invite you, if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, to uh, John chapter 21. We are finishing the book of John today. Woo! Uh, He's been a good friend. These last few uh, chapters, too, we've learned how awesome he is. Uh, He's a fast runner. Um, Evidently, he beats Peter to the tomb. He's, uh, He's the beloved. He's the one that gets to sit closest to Jesus at the Last Supper. Um, you know, pretty favored guy. When you're at Thanksgiving and uh, you're making these uh, these subtle flexes yourself, you can you can identify with him. Um, for a year and a half, we've been walking through uh, John's Gospel, and um, someone said that you know that's taken us quite a while pastor to get through John we'll be glad you weren't here when we went through Luke it took us three and a half years to get through the gospel of Luke and uh, I'm excited to move into our Advent series and then coming weeks and then uh, start a new book and when we started the church this is one of the things we wanted to be committed to is walking through books of the Bible if it's left up to me I preach things that I want to preach and sometimes not the things that we need to hear and I avoid some of the hard things and uh, preach some of the, uh, the, the easy things. But being committed to the, the scripture as a whole uh, keeps us from doing that. So um, we're going to just jump, we're going to jump right in in chapter 21. He starts in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples and The after this is last week, and if you were here, and I hope you were last week, uh, even if you were here, I encourage you to re-listen to that message. There was so much that Jason packed in that thing um, that is good. I listened to it again this week. Let me sum up what he reminded us of last week was that the resurrection life is available to each and every one of us now. The resurrection, not just an event in history, it was the culmination and the validation of the promise of Jesus And it secured hope for each and every one of us in this room as we put our hope in Jesus. And to make this point, Jason, walking through the scripture, went through three different scenes. Went through Mary, who was in despair, and then the disciples who were scared, locked in the room. And Thomas, who missed Jesus the first time and doubted their testimony of his resurrection. And to every one of them, Jesus goes to them meets them where they are, walks them through this identity piece of who they are, of who they're being transformed into, and then he sends them out. He meets them, restores them, and sends them out. And Jesus is going to do the same thing in this text today. So the application today is the same as the application um, even last week, and, and, and we'll walk through this. So that's the after this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And that's of note too, that Sea of Tiberias. You might remember that this is where Peter was called to be a disciple, was at that very same sea, also down the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. 
Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, that's doubting Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Now one, I just want to make note of this, sometimes we, we, we blaze past this too. You know, this is an actual human filled by the Holy Spirit writing this. John says he's writing based off his first-hand account and eyewitness. And he's writing this years after it happened. And I love that they even put this in there. That John uh, is retelling the story and he's like, yep, um, yep, Simon was there and Thomas was there, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, John himself who's the author. And then he forgets the other two guys that were there, which I love. Like, was it Thaddeus? No, he wasn't there. Who was, who was the other? And I say that because this is a real text. This is, not just, uh, this is not just something made up, you know, a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. And we get actual details. The Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, and this is who was there. And they were in a boat. And I love this about Scripture as it gives us real historical data of what's going on. So they were there. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. And they went out, got into the boats, and that, and that night they caught nothing. Again, I love the detail that John's including. Again, if this was a fairy tale, they would go out and catch a lot. But it's not. They went out. They caught nothing. And this is interesting that Peter goes back to fishing. Now, I don't know if we have any fishermen in the room. Any of you like to go fish? Fishing is a great thing. It's a great thing to get away, to get on the water, maybe to turn off the noise a little bit. Maybe some of you hear God speak to you very clearly when you're on the water. And this is a good thing to do, a great reflective thing to do. But I don't think that's why Peter's there. I don't think Peter's just saying, hey, let's, let's just go fish and clear our heads no, if you notice the account in the chapter before when Jesus met them, they were still in Jerusalem in the holy city. And now they've traveled all the way from that holy city, all the way to Galilee, and they're here back at his fishing spot. Peter's going back to not just something that he likes to do. Peter's actually going back to his old way of life. And I think here the lesson for us is sometimes when things don't work out like we think it should, when God doesn't show up the way we think he should, when he doesn't do the things that we've asked him to do, when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we give up following God because we feel like he's let us down. And we go back to our old way of life. And this has happened to a lot of people. Certainly through this season, as 2020 and 2021 has brought some things that we didn't expect and a level of uncertainty that we've never walked through before. And the danger is that we would go back to an old way of life that God has rescued us from and sent us forward from. There's certainly nothing wrong with fishing. It's that Jesus had told Peter, hey, leave the nets. You're going to be a fisher of men. And yet somewhere, he knows Jesus is alive. Jesus has already appeared. Peter has seen him twice and seen the empty tomb. And yet Peter still doesn't know what to do with this level of uncertainty. What's next? What are we supposed to be working on? And so he goes back to his old way of life. There's a temptation for all of us to doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. And this is Peter. It's also a great leadership lesson 
Because Peter says, you know what, I'm going to go back to the old way. And all the disciples followed him back into the old way of life. But I love this. This is what's so great about this passage. And I love this about our Lord is that Jesus meets him there. Jesus doesn't send an angel and say, hey, tell Peter, get back here to the holy city. No, Peter, Jesus meets Peter there. He meets Mary where she is at the tomb. And the disciples where they were locked in the rooms. Remember how he greets Thomas? Thomas had already boldly said, I'm never going to believe unless I put my finger into the side and I see the scars. You remember how Jesus greets Thomas? Hey, Thomas, see the scars? You want to you touch the side? That Jesus meets us where we are. I love that. Religion says we got to get our act together and then maybe God will grace us with his presence. But the gospel says... Absolutely not. You come as you are, and that's where Jesus meets us. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood there on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered, no. Now remember, Jesus is the teacher. He's the good rabbi. And he's teaching them something. Every word here is so pregnant with meaning. We don't have time to look at all of them. But look that he calls them children. There were certainly Greek words for hey bros, fellas, fishermen. He calls them children. It would be the effect of someone standing on the shore. Can you imagine you've been fishing all night? There's nothing worse than fishing all night, especially if you're a professional fisherman, and coming back with nothing. And Jesus knows that they've caught nothing, and he yells out, Hey, little boys, what you caught? No, we've not caught anything. In verse 6, and he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you're going to find some. Now, to a professional fisherman, this would have been such a slight. Because the fish don't know what side of the boat to the fish, there's not sides of the boat. To fish, there's just the water. And they've been fishing all night. They've cast a net on every side of the boat, on the left side, the right side, the backs, the front. They, they're just casting the nets, hoping for fish. It's not like they're, you know, fishing for a bass that's, you know, hiding close to the shore. You ever had anyone give you any advice that you knew wouldn't work? You know, like receiving advice, advice on parenting from someone who's never had kids? Isn't that awesome how they, I cringe every time that I thought I gave a lot of advice on raising kids before I ever had any, and now I just keep my mouth shut. Um, I have no idea what I'm doing. But this isn't just anyone, this is the Lord. And they don't know that yet. And I think either out of desperation or just to appease the man on the shore, they're going to try it. It says, so they cast the nets. Again, such a lesson. What does Jesus ask you to do that you know won't work and so you don't do it? How many times has he asked you to reconcile a relationship to offer an apology to share the gospel to serve the homeless and you just know it's not going to work and so you don't do it 
Listen, the greatest discipleship lesson that we can learn is that whatever Jesus asked us to do, we should do it. Because this is what we're going to see in this crazy, powerful moment. Is they had been laboring all night to catch fish. But as they responded to the voice of Jesus, in one moment, they've done more than a hundred years of fishing could have provided. My encouragement to us is that we would make the phone call to reconcile the relationship one more time to... Invite the neighbor over for coffee to share the gospel with a coworker. I love how we tell Jesus what's going to work and not going to work. But Jesus is in the habit of doing things contrary to logic, like turning water into wine. Or I love that he healed the blind man by spitting in, in the dirt. Like, that's the worst thing you want in your eyes. And yet, that's what healed him. What is Jesus asking you to do? That you just haven't done because you just don't think it's going to work. But they were pretty desperate. How many fish had they caught to this point? Zero. Their way proved zero. If we're keeping score. The way of Jesus, we're going to see 153. So they cast it. In verse 6. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garments, for he was stripped for work. It's a nice image. And he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Now remember, Jesus is up to something here. and this, this whole passage is loaded you can't just read through it quickly. You've got to read through it a couple times and just look, look at what's happening here. And that's certainly what's happening. This is an object lesson. This is the convergence of about three very specific things that had happened before in the life of Peter. And Jesus is bringing them all back around in this one setting to teach Peter something and, and to teach us something. This has happened before. If you remember, if you were with us way back when we went through the Luke's gospel. In Luke 5, Jesus told them the same thing. They had been casting. They had fished all night. They had caught nothing. Jesus told them to cast the nets, and they caught so many that it nearly sank two boats. And Jesus tells them that he's going to make them fishers of men. And now here they are back at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias. Here they are, they fished all night, they've caught nothing. Here he is calling from the shore that they should cast on the other side. And once again, they gather nets full of fish. What's John trying to emphasize here? Well, look at Peter's response. What does Peter do? He doesn't wait for the boat, he throws himself into the sea. I love even that language. Before when this happened in Luke 5, Peter tried to run away from Jesus. He, it says he hid his face from Jesus in shame. Oh, Jesus, who are we? He hid his face in shame. And this time, Peter runs to Jesus. And, and I think because Peter is beginning to understand the gospel for the very first time. Because religion says, hide, keep it in the dark. Don't let anyone know your weakness. Don't let anyone know if you've messed up. You've got to earn your way to God. 
That was Peter in, in Luke 5. He hit his face. But now he's like, Peter had done some really bad things in recent days. And yet he throws himself into the sea and tries to get to Jesus as fast as he can. I can't wait for the boats. I can't wait for the fishing. I'm jumping in. And this is one of the greatest lies of the enemy. One of the greatest traps is this guilt and shame cycle that comes with sin. When you sin and you face the consequences of that sin, certainly, but you get caught in this guilt-shame cycle. You get caught with the voice of the accuser in your head all the time. You're you're always going to be a loser. You're always going to mess up like this. You're never going to be worthy of God's love. And he just accuses and accuses and accuses. And that's where religion breeds fear and shame and guilt. But a relationship with Jesus is, 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 is opposite of that. Peter runs to Jesus. Religion tells us to run and hide and make fig leaves and cover ourselves. But the gospel invites us to run to Jesus. And I think Peter's getting it maybe for the first time in his life. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've caught. Simon Peter, he's got fresh legs. Remember, he left them to haul it in. So he goes and does it himself. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. You ever wonder why it tells you it's 153 fish? There's a, lot, there's a lot of people who say a lot of things about this 153 fish. Some theologians I read this week said it was because there was 153 um, different types of fish in the Sea of Galilee. And there was one of each one of those types that's supposed to represent all the people of God in heaven one day in Revelation. And I mean, I think that's a good idea, but I, I think that's pretty full of baloney. I don't, I don't see any. And some people, like, try to coordinate the numbers to letters. And if you add all these numbers up, 153, it, like, comes out with the name Messiah or something. And, it, and maybe that's true. I don't think it is. You know why I think it says there's 153 fish? Because there was 153 fish. You ever been fishing all night and caught nothing? And then all of a sudden caught a bunch of them? Just go with any fisherman. When you ask, hey, you catch anything? They don't say, we caught a few. They tell you how many they caught. I think these fishermen just counted every one of them. One, two, three, four, five. There's 153 of them. 153 fish. If they had Instagram, they'd be taking pictures and putting that thing everywhere, right? Look at this, a real, a real fish story. <laughs> After a long night of fishing, Jesus had the charcoal fire lit. They come up. And this is the breakfast with Jesus. We've heard of the Last Supper. This is the last breakfast. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. After the long night of fishing, Jesus had a charcoal fire ready for them. And I'm sure you've heard this before. There's only two times in the New Testament where it mentions a charcoal fire. 
And the last time was just a few chapters ago when, G when Peter was warming himself outside of the high priest's quarters by a charcoal fire. And it was there around that very fire that Peter would deny Jesus three times. And so here once again, Jesus in a way of bringing his senses together, he's around a charcoal fire. Jesus has a charcoal fire lit. Charcoal was rare, it was expensive. It was used for cooking, not warming yourself. There'd be no reason to have a charcoal fire there on the beach. Certainly these guys couldn't afford it. And yet Jesus has this charcoal fire and he invites the disciples around. And it's really a re-imaging of, of the supper, the last supper, the last time they'd shared a meal with Jesus. In the same manner that he broke the bread and he gave it to them. And then the fish. So this is what's going on. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I think Peter's trying to figure out, more than these what? More than these fish? Yes, I love you. You know, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then he responded, Jesus did to Peter, feed my lambs. He said to, them, to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And now maybe Peter's thinking about uh, maybe more than the disciples. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said again, tend my sheep. He said a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? I think it's at this, Peter, this, at this point that Peter's like, oh, I know, what's, I know what's going on here. Remember, it was in that upper room that Peter was so defiant when he said, I will never betray you. I will always be with you. And then Peter said, you know, before the rooster crows, before tomorrow morning, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And so Jesus asked him three times, surrounded by the charcoal fire, on the, on the beach of Tiberias, just after he had had a meal with Jesus. And I think Peter finally begins to understand that something more is going on than just breakfast. After making such a confident boast that he would never leave or desert Jesus... He would even die for him. Peter denies him three times around the charcoal fire. I, I, want to, I want us to look at this pattern that Jason introduced last week as he talked about it. I began to see, man, this is how God always works. It's almost like every character in the Bible. This is how, this is how God works. Of being known, of being formed, and being sent. And I want you to write those down because I think this is the same thing that God does in our life. Of being known and being formed and being sent. And whenever life throws you a curveball and things don't happen the right way, I think you can come back to these things. I think you can preach the gospel to yourself even in these three ideas. Being known. It's very clear that Jesus is taking Peter back to the greatest point of his failure. You ever said something you regret? Maybe it's just something stupid that you just can't even quit thinking about. You like wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're like, why did I say that? That was so dumb. 
Last week, just this past week, I was getting on a flight from San Diego back to Dallas, and the lady at the gate handed me, you know, my little ticket and scanned it, and she said, have a great flight. And I said, you too. She's not going anywhere. She looked at me with this weird smirk, and I'm like, stupid, why did I say that? That's something goofy, but you ever said something in a fight that you regret? Said something to your spouse or your kids or your parents that didn't show the love of Christ in the moment of angst? You said something you're not proud of? You ever not showed up for someone that you wish you could have taken back and just showed up for them? Or done something that you regret? Can you imagine Peter the last several days just playing out these events a million times in his head? Remember, Peter was, was the rock. I mean, Jesus nicknamed him Rocky. That's pretty cool. And then right after that, Peter's a little arrogant, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm Rocky. And he tells Jesus, Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me give you some advice. And Jesus like, Satan, get behind me. He went from Rocky to Satan in like one, one bad moment. And I don't think Peter's ever stopped thinking about it. His moments of failure are all through the Gospels, which is why I identify so much with Peter, because I blow it all the time. But under this magnifying glass, it really started at the Lord's Supper. You remember Jesus coming around washing feet? And what does Peter say? You ain't washing my feet, Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, I got to wash your feet, man, or you're not going to have any part of me. And he said, well, don't just wash my feet. Wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, Peter, why do you make everything weird, bro? You make everything so weird. Kind of, he, he messes up the Last Supper. Then in the garden, Jesus takes the disciples, and then he takes Peter, James, and John a little further, and he says, hey, I mean, this is it. The hour's here. I need you to stay awake and pray. Can you just be with me? And he goes back and checks, and what's Peter doing? Peter's just sawing logs, man. He's, and Jesus wakes him up and says, hey, you know, just for a little more, Peter, I think you can do it. Let's just pray. Peter gets 15 seconds into it and he's asleep again. And then Judah shows up, remember, and the battalions of the armies and they're there to arrest Jesus. And Jesus had just talked about going through all this and be peaceful about it. And what does Peter do? He takes his sword out and tries to chop the guy's ear off. He couldn't even I mean, try to chop his head off. He couldn't even do that. He chops his ear off. And then Peter's going to rescue Jesus. And so he goes outside. You know, he's by the charcoal fire. And he's just waiting for his opportunity. And the little girl, servant girl, is like, hey, I think you're, you're, one, of, you're one of Jesus' followers. He's like, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, almost, yeah, I'm sure you are. I, I can tell the accent. Yeah, you're it. He's like, I'm, I, am not, I am not one of his followers. And then she says it again. It says that Peter actually starts calling down curses on her. I don't know him. He's so fearful and embarrassed after that that he doesn't even show up at the cross. He's hiding in a room somewhere. Jesus shows up and breathes on them in the previous chapter. Sends them out again to be fishers of men, but instead of doing that, he goes back to be an actual fisherman. And all of that failure disappointment 
discouragement is just in his head. And Jesus, Jesus brings him back to this place with the charcoal fire and the beach and the breaking the bread and the three questions. All of this to just help Peter begin to understand, to deal with reality. That it's okay to be known. You don't have to keep running and hiding. It's okay to mess up. You know what Peter needs? Peter needs a do-over. You ever played kickball and call it a do-over? In golf, they call us a mulligan. But it's really just a grown-up way of saying do-over. Because if you hit it into the woods and you're not a good golfer like myself and you don't want to score 200 for the day, you just, you just use a mulligan. And you say, All right, I'm going to use my mulligan here, and I'm going to hit it in the woods again. And I'm going to use another mulligan. Hey, can I just throw this ball up there? Can that, does that work? But a mulligan, essentially, you hit a bad shot out of bounds, you get a mulligan, you get a do-over. You, do, you get to hit the ball again without any penalty for the first shot that you messed up. And this is what Jesus is giving Peter. He's giving him a, he's giving him a mulligan. But not just any mulligan. Jesus is giving Peter himself. If I gave Hudson, my third grader, a Hebrew test, Hudson, of course, would fail it miserably because he's never studied Hebrew, doesn't know what any of those letters mean. But if I took that zero on that test and said, Hudson, you know what, because of your dad's grace, I'm going to give you another shot at it, buddy. You can take this test again, and I give him a new test. He's going to fail the second one again because he doesn't just need a do-over. He needs his dad to take that test in his place. And this is what Jesus is giving Peter. Peter had already proven that he's going to fail and fail and fail and fail again. Peter just doesn't need another chance. Peter needs a substitute. Peter needs an advocate. And that's what Jesus does for us. He doesn't just give us a mulligan. He gives us himself. He who knew no sin became sin for me and for you so that we could, we could take on the righteousness of God. And that's the invitation really today. This is the invitation of being known that we don't have to hide and run and cover up. We can just bring all of our stuff. Friends, one of the greatest things that you could ever do in this life is to be known. To have people in your life that really know you. To bring all your stuff to God. Not to just keep playing religious games and putting on the pretty face and the Sunday clothes and, and, and doing, the, doing the Sunday strut and shaking the hands and all the things. You can just come in with, with all your junk and you can just, this is, this is me, Jesus. And you can just bring it all to him. But not just be known by God, but you be known by others. That you can really have people in your life. You know, we live in this like weird thing that like a prayer of confession for us is something we do in our head and we never even speak it. And so, and so we just continue in that cycle of sin because, because no one's there to help us out of it. This is why James says you confess your sins one to another. That's not about a, a priest and a... No, no, no. That, that's about just close friends around you that love Jesus that you can be real honest with and you can say hey, listen man this is just a thing this is this is a thing I need help with and James says when we do that we confess our sins one to another that we're actually 
healed. It brings healing to our soul. Me and Dave talks about, talk about this all the time in our little DG. When we come together comparing our strengths, it breeds competition. When we come strutting, look at what I can do. Hiding all our weaknesses, elevating our strengths and comparing them to other people's weaknesses so we can look better. When we come comparing our strength, it breeds competition. But we, when we come exposing our weaknesses, that's where real community happens. Listen, I've been doing these DGs, these disciples groups. We've called them 43 different things. Um, huddles, whatever, whatever we call them. I've, I've been doing them for, for 10 years and 15 years even before that. And you know, when, you know when, the, when the discipleship group gets real? When people are honest. When we're done playing games and we're done talking about the pleasantries and we're done using the... You know, where have I blown it this week? Oh, pray for my pride, the good Christian accepted one. Meaning that I'm so good at life, I, I, get, I get in my own head I'm so good. You know, I've got pride, yes. You know when it gets real? When someone comes in and they just, they're just real honest. I've seen this happen a dozen or so times throughout the years. And that's when, the, that's when we're like, oh yeah, here we go. Someone's life's about to get radically changed. And that's really the invitation. Jesus just reminding Peter, Peter, your sin could never outweigh my love for you. Your sin doesn't disqualify you. If anything, the admission of your sin and understanding your weakness is what, is what gives you a platform to, say that, to talk about grace. Being known, then being formed, that's the second Think of my notes I actually put on the screen. Maybe I put reformed. I love that. Maybe you use Paul's words. It's transformed. The sin is broken and distorted the image of God in us. And Jesus came to reform that or to transform us back into the likeness of himself. We invite Jesus into the darkest parts of our soul, the wounded parts, the hurt parts. And we ask Jesus to bring healing and we come humbly and this is the power of the resurrection at work in us. We realize again that all of our sin was dealt with on the cross, that Jesus took our guilt and shame and he exchanged it for perfection and righteousness. This is why Jesus keeps telling Peter, hey, Peter, go feed my sheep. Go, go tend to my flock. Jesus had already told Peter that he... After he'd made that confession, he says, you know, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And, but now Peter thinks he's disqualified. That's why he went back fishing. And Jesus is saying, well, your sin didn't disqualify you. My grace covers your sin. That's what reforms us. That's what transforms us. It actually transforms us. This is what the Bible would call the process of sanctification or maturing that we look more and more like the image of Jesus every day as we walk with him, as we confess and repent and uh, we practice these disciplines of, of the word. We let the, the word of God, I love how Ephesians push it, we, we, puts it, we'll be washed with the water of the word. So Jesus just keeps telling Peter. Peter's being transformed right before our eyes. We're going to see it in the book of Acts. 
Peter's going to stand up and give a message and thousands of people are going to come to follow the way that day more than ever. Any one sermon, every sermon that Jesus preached drove people away. Now Peter's going to give empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's going to be building his church and he's going to be using a broken but a reformed man like Peter. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. You've heard this before from one degree of glory to the next. This is from the Lord who is the spirit. One degree of glory to the next. So we're known and we're, we're reformed, we're transformed. And then the third step is we're sent out. We see this in Peter's life for sure. Look at verse 18. We'll get back in the text. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. After this event had already happened, likely John is writing this. He gives us some commentary in verse 19. This is said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this saying, he said to him, follow me. This third part is being sent out, and this is what Jesus is doing. He told us earlier, Emily read it in chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, the first time he appeared to them, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me. So I am sending you. This is the essence of Christianity. And a Christian that doesn't understand his sentness does not understand the gospel. Because this is what it means. This is the nature of God. This is how God has always worked. If you look at the character of God all the way through the Old Testament, it's what he did. He draws Abraham to himself. Abraham's known. He's forming Abraham. Abraham becomes a picture of what the coming Christ would be. And then he sends Abraham out. I want you to go. And he does it with Moses. And he does it with Gideon. And he does it with Joseph. And we could go through all of these. This being known, being formed, being sent. This is what God does. Jesus had given Peter a pretty hard word in verse 20. So Peter turned back and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Again, that's John following them the one who had leaned he had leaned back against during the look at the subtle flex again I just love this of John leaned back against him during the supper and said Lord who is going to betray you when Peter saw him he said to Jesus what about this man Jesus said to him if if, if it's my will that he remain until I come what is that to you again you might underline you follow me So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In verse 24, this is the disciple, John speaking of himself, who is bearing witness about these things. And who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There's also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose, 
that the world itself could not contain the books in which it is written. Jesus tells Peter some pretty hard things. He calls them to do some hard things. And Peter seemed okay with it as long as that was the plight of everyone. But Peter fumbles one more time. What about that guy? Can I remind you of something? Comparison sabotages God's will for your life. Comparison sabotages God's plan for your life. It just does. I have to remind myself of all all that all the time, especially in a social media culture where you're just reminded of how successful other people seem and how lack of successful you seem. You just feel it, and we'll we'll just get wallowing in our own self-pity, and that's that's what Peter's even doing here. And Jesus... Jesus basically says, Peter, don't worry about him. Let the Father worry about him. You just focus on the step of obedience in front of you. Comparison is such a terrible thing used as the tool of the enemy. I want to bring this home with a little application on those three things, and I I want you to think about this. That every follower of Jesus is invited in to be known, to be truly known and truly loved. You know, it's really opposite of what the world says. What does the world say? The world says, hide, cover it up, keep it in the dark, don't let anyone see your weakness. But Jesus says, you know what, bring that into the light. Confess your sins and you'll be healed, be known. And then formed into the image of Jesus, the image of God distorted by sin, reformed in us through the power of the Spirit, transformed into his likeness, such a beautiful thing. The world says, you know what, you need this to be complete. Even at Christmas time, everything, you know, my kids are making their Christmas list. I love that I ask my kids what they want for Christmas, and they don't know what they want. And so they have to get on Target's website to know what they want. It's like the world saying, this is what you need. And if I just had more of this, or if I just had this next thing, or if I could just had a better spouse or a better job, or I had more money if I was to the next season, if I just had success like this guy, if I didn't have disappointment like this guy, if I just had these things. The world says, you just need this. If you just had this, it would make you complete. And Jesus says, you know what? You, you could add all the things in the world and you wouldn't be complete. Because sin has made you incomplete. You don't need these other things, you need a new you. You need to be remade. To be a new creation in Christ. To be known, to be reformed, and then to be sent. Again, the world says, you know, make this all about yourself. Live for yourself. Do what you want to do. If it feels good, do it. Do what makes you happy. But completely contrary to that, the antithesis of that, Jesus says... You know, unless the seed dies, it can't become what it's meant to be. Jesus says of himself, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And this is the invitation. We're not doing communion today, but just right there where you're at, I'll invite Phil and the group to come up. But if you could just create some space right there with you and Jesus. And I just want you to talk to him. This might be the first time you've ever talked to him. You've been playing a religious game a long time, but maybe you just talk to him to come and be known.
to come to him and be loved and reformed and transformed and then to follow him to the redemptive edge. So let's start with just a prayer of confession, just between you and God. This is the start of being known, that you would drag things that you've been hiding into the light. You've been trying to pretty yourself up so you'd be accepted, and Jesus is like, I don't need all that. I just need you to come to me. Maybe as you're dragging those things into the light, this is not just a one-time thing or one sin. You've been struggling with this a long time. You need some real help. You need to come tell a pastor or tell a friend. Tell your spouse. You need to drag it into the light. It's not going to want to go, I promise you that. It's going to the enemy right now giving you every reason in your own mind to justify well this is true for everyone else but it's not true for you and you just got to do it you just got to drag it to light and then a prayer of transformation maybe you'd ask the Lord what, what's in the way of you being transformed might be some priorities that need to be adjusted, some things that need to be moved around, some apps that need to be deleted, some time differently invested. But just agree with Jesus that you want to be transformed into his likeness, whatever that takes. being sent this is the prayer of Samuel here my Lord send me this is the commissioning of being an agent of reconciliation back in your neighborhood or at your workplace where's, where's God sending you where are you following him to? God, we love you and we thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. Lord, thank you for this picture of restoration. I just just warms my heart to think about all the times I've blown it and I want to hide and sweep things under the rug. And you just love me through it all. Just keep inviting me. Luke, you can come to me. You can bring it to me. Just, just bring it to me. Lord, that's what we do. We bring it to you. 
bring ourselves to you and our junk to you, our finances to you. We bring our marriages to you and our kids to you. And our lost neighbors, we bring them to you and our coworkers, our extended family. Lord, I believe maybe the greatest missionary thing we could do this week is just be the aroma of Christ around the, around the, around the table with our relatives. God, do in us what you need to do. Transform us and send us as only you can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're not going to do communion today, but I'll give you some time to pray where you're at. I'll be in the back. Some of our prayer team will be back there to pray. And then Phil's going to lead us in a song here in a minute. So do what the Lord's laying on your heart to do.